Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Michael Hines and Jonathan Silverman, the authors of Johnny Cash International, How and Why Fans Love the Man in Black. Michael and Jonathan, thanks for being here. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having us. Great. So I'm wondering if you can both start by sharing a bit about how this book came about, how you started to not only look at sort of Johnny Cash and Johnny Cash fandom, but sort of the international Johnny Cash fandom. So I don't know which one of you wants to start. Uh, I guess, I mean, I met Michael uh, through a query on his, on the website of the American Studies Association of Ireland, or what is it? The Irish Americans. That's close enough, I would say. Irish Association for American Studies, yeah. Right. (laughs) And I was coming over for a conference and wanted to give um, an additional talk. And I just emailed him and said, is there anywhere I can talk? And he said, "Uh, yeah, you could talk at my school. Do you have a particular text that you're interested in? It's a poetry seminar. Do you have a particular text you're interested in? And... I said, well, I could give a talk about um, a boy named Sue. And he said, oh, that sounds great. So uh, I gave the talk and then Michael and I became friends and we worked together Mm. um, for a study abroad. I should should add to this that whenever, uh, whenever he communicated that to me, like a boy named Sue, I don't think I've ever said this to Jonathan, but in that moment I went, oh, fantastic you know like this would probably be the best turnout for one of these seminars we'll have had in you know three years because uh i understood almost immediately or just i know how much irish people like johnny cash or love johnny cash or interested in johnny cash so it was interesting from that point of view just to just to hear that you know uh and at the same time i knew from things i'd done myself a couple of uh, papers I'd given exploring cash as a as an academic subject that there wasn't much work done on him over here in that regard. So it was it was a really gratifying thing to hear that Jonathan already was committed to that kind of work, but also I knew that people here were so ready to hear it. And then we end up just. I, thanks for saying that, Michael. I did not know that story. Uh, <laughs> we <laughs> that might have been good to put in the book, but you know. <laughs> Um, How do you know I just didn't make it up? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we became friends and we worked together. I, I hosted a study abroad for my university and Michael served as a co-teacher. So we became friends and colleagues that way. And then um, I was approached by University of Iowa to see if I wanted to write a book about Johnny Cash and... Uh, Michael and I talked and we thought about first doing a collection and then we said, oh, um, we should just do this ourselves. And I 
um, was going to write about Norway and my experience as a roving scholar, which I, which Rebecca and I, you should talk, we should talk about sometime. And mm-hmm. Michael, with his experience with his Irish shopkeeper. Because that actually had happened completely independently. Like, I think I met Charlie Taggart and just had talked to him, but hadn't thought the first time I talked to him anything about that being a subject for a book or anything like that. But I think I mentioned it to you that I'd met this guy. And then you, you know, talking to uh, the woman, uh, Catherine from Iowa, uh, you know, the, the, the idea about fandom and international fandom, I think, was formulated by you, but it was just one of these peculiar, we have all these heuristics attached to this project that uh, I just happened to have had this conversation with this guy um, and <laughs> hadn't thought much about it, but all of a sudden it became something that uh, grew and grew, right? Right, and he, um, and just the details that he played Johnny Cash all day, every day in his in his shop in, in Oma, right? The, yep. Yeah, where he grew up. Yeah. And it began, I think, really academically. We, were, we did a survey and we were coming through the internet looking for international fandom. And then we decided we should interview the person um, who ran the Johnny Cash Info Center, who was in Groningen, uh, the Netherlands. And then an Irish singer uh, translated, I think, a Facebook message from Dutch and just invited himself over to the Netherlands to come (laughs) be interviewed. Uh, That was Barry Winters. And then those guys led us to lots of other places. I think the, the real key moment in our, in our book was uh, getting in touch with Elvira. Mm -hmm. You know, who's Elvira and Polgeist, who's the, is the founder of the Johnny Cash Info Center, which is a an amazing Johnny Cash website. Because one of the interesting things with the contrast between Hersey and Charlie, the shopkeeper in Oma, Northern Ireland, is that Charlie was a very sort of self-contained individual, very happy in his fandom, uh, surprised to be spoken to about it, you know, surprised that anybody would actually want to, quite pleased... Uh, but at the same time, surprised that anybody would want to actually, you know, inquire into this phenomenon with regard to him. Whereas with uh, Elvira, you know, she was somebody who was very consciously making fandom and Johnny Cash fandom, you know, a kind of um, her business and her pleasure uh, committed entirely to doing it internationally. And then in the middle of this, we also have, you know, Barry a thorough performer, but also somebody incredibly good at uh, promoting himself and projecting himself. And that he, you know, uh, in, in, in the best possible way, we're delighted he did it. He really put himself in the way of our project, you know? Not in the way of our project, <laughs> like the way um, that's, that's an Irish expression, not a, a, an American expression would mean like he was keeping our project from, in the way it was is a good thing. Just like yeah. uh, it's okay. like he made sure he made yeah. sure that the truck stopped so he could get on it. That's right. Exactly. That's the way I would put it. Like it's whether you want to imagine it as him lying down in the middle of the road or just waving his hands agitatedly. That's the. 
<laughs> he made sure he was part of it and you got the authentic experience. Absolutely. Right. And, and it, transfor- it transformed everything, just as Jonathan said, because one of the frustrations of the project, say when we were only looking at survey responses, was, of course, you know, you're, you're limited by your questions. People don't necessarily... Um, don't necessarily write you, a, you know, 3,000 words and answer to every single question on a survey. You know, you get a lot of yes, no stuff, some very funny laconic material. Um, my favorite one was a, a Norwegian guy who was asked, you know, we asked in the survey, one of the questions was, do you ever, do you ever sing or perform Johnny Cash? And he just wrote, better not. <laughs> <laughs> so, but meeting the people meant that we could you know inquire further and it was so gratifying to to converse in depth with both Barry and Elvira that of course then that created an appetite for doing the same with other people as well so their experiences became very core to the project but it also meant that we could uh to a certain to a certain extent deviate as well and go out and find other people and use them as uh controls and comparators for for what we were seeing in the lives of, of uh, Rebecca and, oh, sorry, not Rebecca, sorry, Elvira and Barry. Yeah, and then, um, so that led to more travel. Both Elvira and Barry traveled to the U.S. with other people and did two different types of cash tours. Elvira was more just um, exposing her Dutch friends to a lot of different types of American culture, including Johnny Cash culture. And Gary um, did the same thing, but also managed to talk himself on the stage in two different places. One with uh, Johnny Cash's brother, Tommy Cash, and his uh, nephew, Mark Allen Cash, to recreate a sequence of songs on... Johnny Cash at Madison Square Garden um, that I didn't even know about um, because it had been a while. One thing that sort of happens with these Johnny Cash fans, uh, Evira and Barry, is they they had read my book. So actually they knew more about Johnny Cash than I did because I put everything I knew into the book and they had read that and then continued to accumulate knowledge and experience. And so um, he... And then he, he, I, he, I watched him talk himself onto the stage at the Carter family compound. And he played the last song that Johnny Cash ever played publicly on that stage and made the host, one of the Carter cousins cry in front of the crowd. It was, it was just remarkable. Like what is it? I mean, this is part of the book, but what, is it, did you feel, you sort of talk at the beginning sort of about what it is about John, like what is it about Johnny Cash that has this sort of international appeal to, and, and you talk about that appeal to a wide audience. So um, it's not just conservatives or liberals or progressives, but what is it did you start to see or, or what feeling did you get around that? Um. Well, it's complicated, and it's 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 complicated because it, it's one thing when we're talking about, say, uh, engaging with fans like Barry and Delvara, and indeed um, Charlie Taggart, the shopkeeper in Oma, because for, for them it was a long narrative in many ways, a kind born out of 
again, going back to this idea of the heuristic, you know, this Charlie Taggart, the shopkeeper, his story about engaging with cash, it just, it, it happened one day that he happened to be outside and the radio happened to be playing a song, a radio station that he didn't usually listen to, but the song was, if the good Lord's willing and the sun don't shine. And that, and that was the hook. Uh, but um, for those long-term cash fans, they tended to have long-term stories that were based on living with them, growing with them, um, and in many ways, celebrating the complexity of Cash's career and the various turns he, he took. And that's in particular what they valued. You know, in, in many ways, it almost was the kind of longevity and complexity of the, the life text and everything that went with it. But on the other hand, we encountered uh, huge numbers of people, one way or another, who had got into Cash at different moments in their lives, but also at different moments in Cash's, that Cash himself seems to establish a remarkable kind of chain of events um, that people can connect to. You know, the, the number of people that became Johnny Cash fans because they saw um, Mark Romanek's video for Hurt or heard uh, a song from American Recordings. I mean, th this we found out a lot of stuff in terms of that, you know, it's not just that Johnny Cash fans don't all come from the 1950s and the 1960s. Young people really like Johnny Cash. Um, it was fascinating to see that whenever I went to Portugal to, to just to sort of explore this university town in Portugal, give a give a talk on our project and more or less try and meet as many people as I could who were interested in Johnny Cash. And I was kind of overwhelmed by the experience, you know, and the way in which Cash was this signifier of something um, I'm not sure people can always put their finger on what exactly it is that's significant about him, but the feeling that he is significant and the feeling that he represents something very real and pivotal. Me and Jonathan have a, an unwritten rule where we never mention the word authentic because we don't trust it. Um, uh, but at the same time, that it's not to say that Cash necessarily represents authenticity but he generates a feeling of authenticity for people that seems to be different to the kind of feeling of authenticity that's generated by an awful lot of other artists that people feel um safe with cash even as they also respond to what's uh dangerous about him you know in terms of some of the material that he sings about and some of the kind of traumatic experience he represents but um the phenomenal trust that he inspires in people, I think, is um, is something you know, almost beyond our estimation. You know, it still surprises me. But you, and then the other half of it is compared to someone like Elvis, and this is a point that Elvira made. Yeah, is that he um, had a very long career. He worked in multiple genres. He had five um, like Hall of Fame record producers. He had children who married into musical families. He toured forever and he toured around the world where someone like Elvis, um, whose appeal was undoubtedly much broader than Johnny Cash's for most of their parallel careers, did not tour very much after the 50s. I think almost never went abroad, yeah. um, except through movies and things like that. And his his um, estate still registered, I mean, still um, gets a lot of Johnny Cash's music into movies um, and television shows. And so you'll go onto YouTube and there'll be a recording of um, Hurt or 
um, I can't remember the other one, but um, someone from who has just watched Logan, uh, the what is what what kind of movies Logan? Um, I can't. The the yeah. um, X Men, Marvel's X Men. Yeah, yeah, the X Men mm-hmm. movie, and it's in the X Men movie, and you'll see a bunch of posts from X Men listeners, watchers that just say, "I came here because of Logan." Yep. And so you have one hand, you have Barry Winters who talks about writing an essay to win a Johnny Cash 45 in the early 1970s. And then you have someone in 2019 watching Logan and becoming a fan that way. I just don't know of many other artists that have that, that sort of long-term generative appeal that keeps renewing yeah. for every generation, but in a slightly different way. Um, yeah, it was, yeah. Oh, sorry. go ahead. I was, I think the, the, the thing that we came up against is that you have this interesting combination with cash of the canny and the uncanny, you know, that, uh, on the one hand, what's canny about cash is that, you know, his just his sheer appetite for work, uh, his ability to put himself on the road, whether or not, you know, his star was sort of high or low and internationally, that was hugely significant. He kept coming back to places like Ireland Germany, Scandinavia, um, you know, it was, it was part of the rhythm of his life, you know, you know, maybe that's partially because he was frightened to run out of money at some, at some level or something, but at the same time, it was something very, uh, hard grained in him and that built very, very substantial relationships. And it brings me back to a word I used earlier, which is trust, you know, but the uncanny part of it is how, Cash still does all of this work. He's still a hardworking artist years after his death because, as Jonathan says, it's just amazing to see how um, those songs, and I think it's probably true to say, particularly now, it seems, those songs that he recorded with Rick Rubin, things like God's Gonna Cut You Down and Hurt, those those songs seem hugely um, vocal in our culture, you know, that they seem to, they seem to speak to people in all sorts of surprising uh, ways and in abiding ways. And to be honest with that, I I, I think we're still, we're still, uh, when I say it's uncanny, it's because I'm still slightly in awe of that. You know, it's still a source of surprise to me to see how cash resonates, not in terms of perpetuating the same work, but in terms of generating new resonances for new groups of people in new places continuously. Well, it was interesting because Jonathan, I think you were a roving scholar about a decade before I was. Um, And I didn't do a workshop on Johnny Cash, but on American history, sort of American music. And by far, he was one of the artists that students, students knew they could recall, they could talk about his songs, right? And there was an appreciation for him, right? Besides some of the contemporary artists that they know from the U.S., but he was one that they all were like Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash, especially in sort of rural Norway. So I thought that was interesting too, that connection um, that still continues with the young people even 10 years later, Right. Yeah, I mean, it was. It, I think I, I think we write in the book that it was not surprising that uh, Norwegians were Johnny Cash fans because 
you know, I don't think there's any for even for me in 2007 and eight, when I was there, I was never surprised that there was a Johnny Cash fan, but I was surprised by how many people requested that particular workshop, which was the second most popular after the American um, presidential election, which is almost was required for schools to listen to. Um, so yeah, I was, um, and that was because of the movie that was only three years after the movie came out. So I think that itself generated a lot of interest in Johnny Cash. And so, um, there was probably some of the, some idea that I would help either verify or expand on some of the lessons that the movie sort of put out in the world. So, um, in your book, right, you sort of set up the Johnny Cash and, and sort of talking about this context of this fandom. Um, and then you sort of go into this sort of year in the life. And you've mentioned some of these people um, that you talked about or looked at. But another thing that you talk about in the context, but also in this, is the Internet. And you look at sort of YouTube and also the comments on videos, but also that ring of fire and how there is that sort of performance piece. So could you talk a little bit about what you think the internet's role was, is in Johnny Cash fandom, in particular what you saw in those YouTube comments and that performance piece of Ring of Fire? Well, Michael and I are <laughs> both uh, have a lot to say about this, but I- um, Awesome. No, I, it's good, but- um, just well, don't, just don't make us relive the experience of sitting at a table for what felt like <laughs> ten weeks <laughs> watching, know, YouTube just watch, watching YouTube yeah. videos. That's my children's dream, right? Yeah. There. Hey, have you seen this one? Hey, have you seen this one? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the question that we really came up—I mean, the, what the internet taught us. Um, there's two things. One are the YouTube videos, which yeah. um, sort of tell us about how. Um, almost iffy the definition of what a fan is because oh. it's so it's just so like is the person posting a song like posting under a video from logan a fan hmm. it are all commenters fans um are people who are posting videos of themselves playing ring of fire are they fans I, you know, like it's almost the same with authenticity. You know, Michael and I do not, you know, we're not the international court of fandom and we don't make past judgments on who's a fan and who isn't. But it does seem interesting to compare that participation to the way that someone like Barry participates. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have the Internet as the facilitator of fandom yeah. that, you know, well, like, um, Elvira can, uh, Elvira, yeah. can, Elvira and, uh, and Barry can arrange their trips all the way from Ireland and the Netherlands all through, you know, travel websites and email and sending videos and things like that in a way that fans from a different era would never even think of. And it's also like the young singer, the Dutch guy who sang with the band, the Black Suspenders, Elvira's band, he had come to cash through watching the hurt video and we were kind of startled when we talked to him uh on the day they were doing their concert in cork that you know he'd he'd listened to that something like four years previously 
And here he was standing in front of us wearing, you know, um, <laughs> you know, a full, full kind of cowboy regalia. Um, you know, he owned nothing but cowboy boots. Uh, but the idea that in four years he'd gone from uh, watching a YouTube video of Hurt to full-blown transformation, you know, um, and that seemed very interesting to me. And we did have a big argument at one point, I remember, um, about um, the whole question of speed and fandom that the internet brings up, uh, that it goes one way and that it, there, there are two aspects to it. <laughs> A hard-bitten fan, somebody like, say, Charlie Taggart or um, like Barry, they earned their cash fandom the hard way. You know, they were patiently waiting for releases to come out every year. They followed him through, you know, uh, 78s, uh, you know, 45s, 33s, 8-track cassettes, all this kind of stuff. But it was a kind of patient accretion. And on the other hand, um, Thurnus uh, could acquire all of that almost instantaneously in terms of the listening, in terms of, you know, and of course you have to fight against the algorithms to organize your listening, to get through stuff in sequence the same way somebody who would be building up their knowledge gradually would. But um, I suppose, again, Jonathan said we weren't, we weren't judges of fandom. It came back to the same thing. It's not that it's necessarily, there, there's nothing wrong with getting your fan knowledge fast, I suppose. Uh, it's just a fundamentally different experience. And it's what 21st century fandom, I think, is like. And you could argue that looking at those um, fan comments, it doesn't seem relevant, really, for us to look at the comments on a YouTube page and really decide whether or not uh, this is fandom or, or, or that isn't or whatever, but to see or to think or conceive of the ways in which... Um, what was being expressed could be seen as expressions of fandom and perhaps expressions of a new kind of fandom. Internet fandom mightn't uh, encourage the same very intense, I love this figure kind of fandom that a lot of us grew up with. Uh, maybe necessarily it's a more uh, skittish phenomenon, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's less real, but just fundamentally different. So you talk a bit too about these ways that fans cover and post Ring of Fire um, in for the for that year. What is it? June twenty seventeen to June twenty eighteen. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the different ways in which you saw this sort of participation um, in the fandom is with this particular song and how people sort of posted and participated yeah. I mean, the, the first thing we have to remark is that some of those videos probably had 20 views and some had 20 million <laughs> that, that's something that you have to really take into account what what i found so startling about it and again i think it's problematic perhaps to think about it necessarily as expressions of fandom in a conventional sense the the, the stuff that struck me the most were these weirdly intimate scenes where you were practically taken into somebody's uh, family life. You know, um, I was particularly intrigued by what appeared to be a, a Dutch family who'd relocated to Malta. Again, I'm 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 building an narrative here. I'm not absolutely sure that that's what was happening, but their family had, I think, three separate postings of performances of Ring of Fire 
one in an incredibly kind of subdued domestic party setting. There was a kind of bottle of whiskey on the table and snacks laid on the table and a, a, a young couple sang it in acoustic very, very quietly. But then I noticed there was a comment underneath the video and uh, the woman had left the comment. I did a search for her and she appeared with the father of the family on stage singing um, Ring of Fire uh, in a Maltese burlesque club. And she apparently is Malta's leading burlesque singer. And she's just a family friend. And then there was another video of the family, the, 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 the patriarch of the family singing Ring of Fire in a restaurant. So from that, you're going, okay, um, is this fandom? Quite clearly, somebody in that family group really loves Ring of Fire. And they really <laughs> presume, maybe they're a fan of the song more than they are a fan of Johnny Cash. But what's so interesting is that um, it also seems to be the case that there's a serious, th th this is a family group that are choosing to put their love of Ring of Fire online and uh, either inviting themselves or a few other people to look at it. I mean, we stumbled across it entirely by accident, but that struck me as just a, a kind of uh, remarkable kind of coming together of, of uh, a kind of desire to perform with a genuine interest in the song, but clearly also this idea of the song taking hold of a network beyond whoever the person is who's the you know original you know person with the fondness for it. But on the other hand, then there are people making um, you know getting into auteurism and making really fancy videos based on cash songs. On the other hand, half the time, Ring of Fire, we're also aware, is just a song people cover and like to cover. So it was impossible for us to tell. And that's just because it's a song that's easy to cover. Um, but on the other hand, they do that because they know that people will like it. It's not sometimes the performance in itself that we're listening for as much as the what the crowd say. You know, the kind of, whoa. What do you think, Jonathan? Well, I, th I mean, and I would add, I mean, I agree with all that. And I would just add that sometimes it's one of the few um, places where it feels like Johnny Cash fandom could be a type of currency that people are spending. So mm. um, there's something about the way people cover songs and that's supposed to reflect things back to you, right? In a way that like, I have taste, I know I'm cool, I'm going to cover this legendary singer song to show how much I'm committed to this idea of Johnny Cash and the associated values with him. Yeah. And so I think there's a little bit of that too. And then there's people who just sort of take it. I keep thinking of that. The one, uh, the two covers that I love the most are the one from the Hungarian band yeah. with the, with the female um, singer and violin player. Is that right? I Did think so. Yeah, that's it. And um, they're clearly like straddling both those things at the same time, right? They're they're sort of expressing their idea that that oh, I, um, you know, we we know who Johnny Cash is and we like Johnny Cash, but we have our own kind of way of making that. And then the German that German band, the Hermes House Band, which um, has invented a dance 
uh, <laughs> associated with Ring of Fire. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, the different versions almost exactly mirror, by the way, the, the first cover of it comes from June Carter's sister, Anita. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like almost like a dirge. And then Johnny Cash t- turns it into something very lively and whose meaning is sort of undercut by how spirited it and happy it seems. Yeah. So you almost have that split in the covers as well. So it's, I think there, there's that too. And by the way, when I talk about currency, I'm not running down the cover. I think we all, I think fandom is often serves as, especially when you're younger, fandom often stands in for identity in a lot of different ways. Like mm-hmm. we yeah. figure out who we are and who we are to the world by our preferences. And we, we try to find other people with the same preferences. That's just a natural way of, of people coming together, I think. And I think it's also interesting, you know, there were, there were plenty of people we encountered at one point or another, you know, and we go right back to Charlie at the beginning of the project. He had no interest in listening to anybody's cover version of Ring of Fire. Um, in fact, it was kind of, you know, uh, uh, totally not something he really would consider. Why Why would any Johnny Cash fan want to listen to a cover of Ring of Fire was his logic. Um, and so that, um, again, I suppose just, <laughs> it does that, you know, this, I think this comes back to actually what we find. I think this is quite an unusual book in its own way. It's got an unusual shape. It takes unusual tangents, goes in unusual directions, uh, things that we didn't really quite anticipate. But I think that's because that's what we found Johnny Cash fandom to be like, you know, that it was, uh, there were contemplative, uh, quite scholarly people, but then people entirely given over to this idea of performance and, uh, you know, a kind of projective view of experience. It was, you know, really fascinating to encounter. And this idea of one of, we haven't talked about Marco yet and Ring of Fire always makes me as a little punk rocker that I was think of social distortion um, and Johnny Cash has sort of move into that realm. So I really appreciated this um, look at um, Marco and the French and and sort of the um, bricolage work you talk about. So can you talk a bit about that um, fandom sure. because we have these people sort of bringing Johnny Cash to others as well. So, yeah. And, and, you know, Marco, um, it was such an extraordinary experience meeting Marco because uh, you know, just in terms of his gradual release of truly extraordinary information over the space of three hours that I was talking to still astonishes me. You know, I think it was about halfway through where, you know, he announced that he toured with Johnny Thunders and, and, and things like that. So, um, and yet what was very interesting talking to him, but is that he kind of, um, uh, Marco still would kind of uh, describe himself as a, as a punk rocker. He's a lot of other things too, you know, and uh, his interests in music are actually pretty broad at this point. But funnily enough, I kind of felt that he kept that the Johnny Cash activity was slightly separate from everything else he did. And was interesting given he's a performer, you know, a, a bass player, you know, a pretty handy bass player as far as I can make out. Um, he had never had any interest in playing cash, he said. And he had no, he was another one saying he didn't really have any interest in cash tribute bands. Um, that, you know, his whole point being, no, you know, d- 
do it yourself. Like he sort of attached himself to that kind of punk philosophy. Of course, he's on shaky ground there because his own band, their most celebrated single was uh, a cover of La Marseillaise. And of course, there's a great, you know, a great punk tradition of covers. Um, and, uh, you know, so, and of course, in the Portugal chapter, we talked about the the TDO boys cover of Folsom, Folsom Prison Blues. Um, but interestingly for Marco, uh, he had created a kind of special zone for Cash. And I think that in part was because it was so foundational in his own experience and growing up. You know, as, as, as you saw, Rebecca, you know, he talks about living um, in Nigeria as a young boy and his father going in these annual trips to London and coming back with records. And then, you know, they would learn how to play songs um, uh, from those records and that his dad brought back his dad brought back Johnny Cash and it came and it came from that and it's quite at the same time very very clear even though he doesn't talk much about connecting Cash to um, you know what he did later at the same time it was absolutely foundational and of course it brings us into a further I mean there were other things that we find out uh, in the project after that I mean there's there was this group called the, of people called the Johnny Cash Appreciation Society in Dublin in the 1980s, and they were punk performers who met purposely to perform Cash music, um, and indeed expanded that into punkifying uh, other country standards as well. But this comes back to the to to maybe the earlier question about what's unique about Cash. I mean, that uh, or what particularly draws them to him. And I can't remember, was it Rebecca or you, Jonathan, who just used the word cool? Cash obviously represents a very particular version of cool. Um, he represents a very particular um, angle on culture and society for people. I think that actually that angle can vary, but I think that people really love the fact that he appears to be um, integral to society to some degree, but at the same time uh, at a very, very interesting commentarial angle upon it uh, you know and and that that is compounded if you're a fan and you feel slightly dislocated yourself and for marco cash was incredibly valuable for him in terms of trying to articulate his own relationship to french society i mean I, i'm not sure it's necessary you know marco was sort of pretty adamant that there was no that johnny cash has no profile in france uh, that's not strictly speaking true. You know, you'll find Johnny Cash records if you go to any French uh, record store and you can hear Johnny Cash music and there are Johnny Cash impersonators. Um, but at the same time, it probably is true that Cash is not um, culturally um, central or as important in France as he might be in some other European countries. But in many ways, that's not what's really important here. What's really important is that Marco felt he had a kind of mission uh, to show France Johnny Cash as it should find him, and the version of Cash that he constructed was a very, a very Marcoish version of Johnny Cash and a very punkish version. I mean, going back to talking about the internet, Marco's website um, uh, for the Johnny Cash—I'm trying to remember the proper name of the club—is it Johnny Cash Fan Club France? I think I that's think so. It. I think Which, that's right. He's now changed the name to Johnny Cash Fan Club France and Europe. Yeah, so he's, he's got that, um, you know, imperious kind of like uh, ambition. Um, but the website uh, is not, a, it's not polished. It's got, it's a, it 
it's got things put in from all over the place and it has these kind of playlists that sometimes work and sometimes don't but um so it's not it's definitely not the kind of it's not the kind of website that you could imagine a record company generating however it's entirely the kind of website that you can imagine a fan generating and i think that what marco does in many ways he was modeling a kind of fandom for france One of the you mentioned Portugal when you were talking, and, and and some of this relates to that and how Marco's dad brought home records. They learned it. You talk about this idea of cash bombing, um, and another and a Johnny Lydon reference. So we have to talk about that. <laughs> so can you talk a bit about that idea of uh, import when you talk about Portugal and that idea of cash bombing and uh, what was really intriguing about the Portugal trip was that. And what emerged quickly, because like I said earlier, you know, the, the original idea was to go over and talk about cash and, and uh, you know, make 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 a cash nuisance, like just insert cash wherever I could. I, I didn't into discourse. I didn't need to really do it because once I gave the talk or once that I, you know, encountered people who'd come to the talk, I became kind of it, it was a matter of just trying to kind of fight people off because there was so much to talk about. But what was really remarkable about Portugal and in particular remarkable by contrast was how liking cash uh, became in itself um, a way of not understanding Johnny Cash, but of understanding Portugal. And again, it was a generational thing. The, the vast majority of the people that I were talking to were people who had gone into cash fairly recently uh, and in particular, since the Rick Rubin albums and stuff like that. But they were also describing uh, how um, they had, you know, made presents off Johnny Cash records to their parents and sort of like, oh, you know, this is, a, you know, expanding upon this and why have you done that? But of course, with the history of Portugal, where um, it was uh, more or less a, a pretty much hermetically sealed culture until uh, the mid-1970s when the Salazar regime was finally deposed, it was more or less impossible, well, certainly in kind of any large-scale way, to to import music from outside, unless, of course, it was state-sanctioned. And Johnny Cash was just the kind of performer that Portuguese people of a certain generation had not seen. And it seemed to be, I was intrigued by this phenomenon of these Portuguese students and people of a kind of more recent generation almost kind of trying to insist to their parents that Johnny Cash is an experience they should have had. Uh, and I, I thought it was quite funny when the parents didn't necessarily agree. <laughs> so that's just some that's just some old guy from the 50s. Let's forget about that. You know, maybe they don't want to remember that they didn't have that 1950s. But at the same time, uh, it it was intriguing to me in that again, it seemed to be that cash feels not just culturally significant, but intergenerationally significant. Um, and at the same time that here's, here's, here's a model of how to live almost, or how to think. And that's definitely what we, um, what would come across in some of these conversations, like with say, uh, Pedro, the, the rockabilly singer who runs the bar in the town of Coimbra, the city in Portugal that I was in. And, and I should add that, you know, Pedro began as a punk and, had, you know, sort of gradually kind of moved his way over um, to rockabilly, but did not see any contradiction in that, you know. And um, and at the same time, 
uh, made great play of the fact that he thought of Johnny Cash as a punk as well. His favorite Johnny Cash video was the one where Johnny Cash imitates Elvis. I don't know if you know the one where he kind of muscles his hair up. What's that in, Jonathan? It's on the it's on the nineteen fifty nine town hall party. Town hall party, just this extraordinary you know thing where, um, yet again, and you know, it's not, Johnny Cash is setting himself up as uh, a kind of comic uh, opposition, you could say, but it also is a a kind of critical opposition, and I I think I think that's another thing that um, I'm not sure how much we got into this with Cash. Uh, but I, I, I've, I always thought that with Elvis, a big part of Elvis fandom is the desire to sleep with him, um, that there's an erotic dimension to the appeal of Elvis. Whereas I think with Cash, an awful lot of his appeal is intellectual. And I think that Cash's version of cool can be understood in those terms. Uh, that means that people are looking to claim that intellectual authority some of the time, which is why it becomes important sometimes for people to contest the meaning of cash fandom, why so many people want to kind of claim some of that authenticity. And Portugal struck me as a fascinating example of that because um, the politics of the culture are so apparent and so uh, tangible that any discussion you have about music or any discussion you have about anything, whether it's sport or any phenomenon of popular culture, you can feel that at the same time you're pressing pretty hard and instantaneously on the immediate politics of the of of the nation and beyond. Uh, I, and, I, yeah, go okay. so no, go ahead, go ahead. No, go on. No, I more or less finished my thought. <laughs> I, I was gonna, no, and I was gonna add that I think as much intellectual. I think it's also, um, I think it's also empathetic. I mean, the appeals yes. that people find in cash uh, a sort of emotional counterpart compared to Elvis, right? The Ring of Fire is about feeling a particular way about love. Um, Hurt is about feeling a particular way about being in the world. Whereas even Elvis's uh, most emotional songs, are, there's you don't really make the connection with Elvis about a subject with Johnny Cash so much of Johnny Cash's music and also the speed and the um, the speed and everything else of you know often his songs are a little bit slower or they vary in speed quite a bit I, I think there's that too I mean there's a type of where people sort of feel that Johnny Cash gets them even in a way that you know they'll obviously never meet. And how could he, but somehow there seems to be something there. And that's why there's, I think also so many Johnny Cash tattoos. If you put a Johnny Cash tattoo on your body, you're sort of acknowledging that this is a person who I feel a connection with in some way, or says something about me, I guess too, but, um, or, or a combination of, of, yeah. of all of them. But it's like my, my favorite comment in the entire as Jonathan knows, is we, we, you know, just it, going back to the surveys, there was this Argentinian guy who came up with this formulation uh, saying, Johnny Cash is the feeling you have when you sit at the edge of your bed in the morning and wondering if it's worth carrying on. And just, <laughs> oh my God. And the point about that, to, to quote Boston, is that that's more than a feeling. Uh, that's that's, that's a, an understanding of a feeling and a framing of a feeling. Uh, it's a very intelligent way of talking about a feeling. 
And I think that's exactly what cash does. Now, there were plenty of people who didn't feel quite as desolate about cash as that. And, you know, it's important. And I know Jonathan's very strong about this. I mean, like cash is a great comedian as well, right? Um, and plenty of people respond to that too. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I think that that has made cash such a broad success is really that he works in so many different genres. Mm. You know, he sort of began as a folk slash country slash rockabilly, then sort of moves into rock. And then basically along with Bob Dylan and Willie Nelson and, and a bunch of other, um, you know, older white male performers, uh, Americana, um, well, that's not true. I think there's a lot of female and African-American Americanas. But I think if you ask which of the artists that um, are sort of connected to that, I think Johnny Cash is one of the first ones. At least, you know, just John Carter Cash claims that he he has founded that genre, though, I mean, if you start doing the work backwards, you know, Robert Johnson or, you know, yeah, uh, origin origin stories are tricky, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, especially yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, one of the things that I think is that cash, uh, remarkably, and again, this is not so much for people who are expressly, singularly fans of Johnny Cash, but one of the things that's come across, and this is actually since the books come out as well, various communications I have with people who who've either read it or are looking to get it or have contacted me about it. Uh, funny enough, they'll quite often say, I, I, I love Johnny Cash. I don't necessarily consider myself a Johnny Cash fan. You know, I'm actually really into Slayer. But <laughs> but seriously, you know, and then they go, but at the same time, I heard this and I heard this by Cash at this particular moment. And I'm absolutely, and I'm just intrigued and hooked. And so it, it means that I think that what Cash is, Cash is exists on a kind of chain of signification for nearly everybody, you know, in terms of their likes or in terms of their cultural preferences, that there's a way you can find yourself to cash um, because somehow or other he manages to leave um, an imprint or he creates a kind of connectivity to just so much across not just the American tradition, but actually, you know, beyond that, but let's say a kind of an American-based tradition, uh, whatever genre you want to call it. I mean, Jonathan and me were really so happy. Our happiest moment in the entire YouTube uh, marathon sessions, uh, it was when we came across these um, reggae versions of, well, not so much reggae versions of Ring of Fire, but reggae songs that used Ring of Fire as a, as a, as a kind of sample or used the kind of brass from Ring of Fire. And just even hearing the variation within that, uh, there was just something so joyous and sort of uh, phenomenally interesting about it. But of course, the only way to go from there really was to go right back to cash again and then think about all of the other significations that have been derived from that same song and from that same um, from that same couple of bars of music. Well, and when you both were talking, uh, one of the things that comes up, and Jonathan mentioned that idea of Americana, but you also talk about those people, and you mentioned this a little at the beginning of uh, who travel to the United States, who really want to sort of document and have this sort of, you don't like the word authentic, but that experience of being in these spaces where cash was um, 
And so you talk about that, the, I think the collector chapter. So can you talk a bit about that too, what you saw with um, this wanting to be in the space where cash was and really wanting to be a part of those spaces in those areas? Yeah, that's interesting. The, um, the way that both groups of, of people travel through there. The one person we haven't really talked about is Walter Ringhofer. Yeah. And he is a, a, he's the proprietor of I, what I think is the only other Johnny Cash museum in the world besides mm-hmm. um, the one in Nashville, which is the Johnny Cash Museum. And it's in, I always get, Michael, what's the name of that town? Uh, oh, I'll have to. It's a small town in Austria. It's barely a town. Um, yeah. but, but Rebecca, what we should add in here is that the, and my wife pointed this out to me about a, a week after the book came out, um, that of course, Walter's surname is Ringhofer, which is very close to Ring of Fire. And it never even occurred to us to make uh, any play in that pun. So, you know, Riedlingsdorf, Austria, sorry, Riedlingsdorf. And so when he was there, when he was traveling throughout this, doing this trip, he took, he and his wife took 8,000 photographs and videos, Um, at least 8,000. There might be actually be more. And, you know, that tells you one first something about technology, right? That to take 8,000 photos in 1975, you could only be a professional photographer on a high price to gig from a, a national magazine. Where here, this guy who just basically starts a museum from the internet. I'm sure that most of his purchases came from eBay and various forms of eBay um, and communications through fan sites and everything else. Um, So he goes to the U.S. and takes photographs and he wants to be in the space. I, I don't know if the trip, I don't know if the trip is connected materially to the museum but it's part of the same impulse to sort of see how much Johnny Cash you can get into your life in one, in one way or the other. Um, I think it was the first time he had come to the United States. It may have been the first time he was on a plane. It was. I'm not. Yeah. I'm, yeah. And he, so, he said so. Yeah. And so all of a sudden you have this person in a small town in Austria, who's expanding his perspective by coming um, to the United States. And Johnny Cash is the vehicle for that. But, you know, a lot of the photos in the, a lot of the photos in the, in the stream are not, there are a lot of Johnny Cash things for sure, but there are a lot just, just of the area on the airplane. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of photographs of just taking photos out the wing of, um, and of her, his traveling companions on the plane. And so that's one. Um, Elvira, I don't think, um, I, Elvira's trip is, I think, less to inhabit the space that Johnny Cash inhabited and more as a way of making connections with people and also showing people um, what they can see if they leave where they're from and go travel. And... Johnny Cash is, I guess, a, a type of vehicle in that way to sort of get 
people across borders to come experience the United States in a different way. Um, it, it was also an interesting challenge in actually writing uh, because the, the, the giving an account of, say, Barry's trip and giving an account of Elvira's trip, I mean, I wasn't there, so it was entirely up to Jonathan, so I could sit back and, and relax. But Jonathan was able to write those as as travelogues. But how do you write about uh, 8,000 photographs and the attendant videos? And how do you, you know, and, and those videos, it was very funny in a way, you know, that, that the videos and the images were off the same trip that Jonathan had been on as a participant with Barry. So in a way, uh, ultimately, we couldn't re-narrate our way through all those photographs. The way that we ha had to actually write about Volter was to go back and look at the museum and to see that um, the photography in itself was a not necessarily an extension, but certainly another manifestation of the same impulse that had him build the museum, make the museum. What's to say that those photographs in their own right aren't some kind of you know uh, a museum in their own in their own right? Um, that Volter is a remarkable figure in this regard. You know his his uh, desire to collect and to show um, is something really remarkable. And it was interesting for us to compare notes on from, and this is where we get back to, we haven't really talked about it much, I suppose, the international, transnational aspects of that, um, that, you know, Walter uh, had, brought, had brought back against all laws, of course, um, a ball of cotton uh, that he picked up in Arkansas and brought it back to the museum. And I, I was in, um, I went to to visit the Cash Homestead myself a, f a few months after um, with a friend. We were over for a conference and we did the exact same thing. As soon as we saw cotton, we stopped the car. It was actually snowing in Arkansas when we were there. Uh, amidst the snow, we were grabbing around, picking up cotton and smuggled it back into the country uh, to, to look at it in Ireland because it's... Uh, it's just a, a signifier of such significance to it, something that we've never seen in its kind of raw form. And then you think about how freighted with history that particular commodity is. Um, and at the same time, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that an, an American takes cotton for granted when they drive past it in the field. But uh, to a kind of European fan with an interest in music coming from the mid-south or the deep south, it makes their hair stand an end when they see a ball of cotton. Mm -hmm. Well, you end, we've been talking for a while, so you end the book with this um, thinking of fandoms and and you mentioned the South, but this is in Southern, in Ireland in the South, uh, um, with this sort of uh, performance at the Spike Island and the and a 50th anniversary of Folsom Prison Blues. So can you talk a little bit about that choice of an ending and, and how that concert um, with Barry's band really sort of brings your, everything back to, you know, brings the circle, closes the circle? Uh, well, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I think you, I think you just said that. Uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. um, <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, yeah, I think um, that showed. Um, I actually, in a way, it just showed 
uh, it shows a few things that sort of run throughout the run throughout the book. One, um, Elvira's desire to make connections, so to bring her band over to play with Barry's band, uh, to be, play with Barry. Um, Barry's um, goal to recreate cash and perform cash wherever he could, and then to do that with an audience. And then for us, when we interviewed the people on the boat, um, finding out how many different weird threads of Johnny Cash fandom were everywhere. So we, um, we were on the boat with this one man who was a, who was there for, I think a choir sing along. If I'm not, if I recall correctly, um, we said, oh, so you're not there for the concert. He's like, there's a concert? He says, my friends and I get together every year and sing, what was, what was it Ring of Fire? No, it wasn't Ring of no, Fire. No, they no. sang something else. But they had a, yeah. just this random Johnny Cash, um, this Johnny Cash sing-along. And I said, well, that's really interesting. We, we don't really think of people getting together for a Johnny Cash sing-along, you know? And that's one of the other things is that Michael and I noticed wherever we, once we started looking for Johnny Cash, he, he's pretty much everywhere. I, you know, you'd go, I'd go out for a walk, um, in Ireland in downtown and someone would be covering him on the street. I was with my mom and my nephew traveling and I saw two or three buskers playing Johnny Cash, in Toronto and all playing them in very different ways. Some playing them very maudlin versions and some playing them very upbeat versions. Um, I met someone else who had done the same thing that Barry did in, um, in Winnipeg, Canada. So this concert was this connection between Barry and Elvira who had stayed in touch the entire time that we, were writing after they met because um, even though they're not the same, exactly the same type of fan, I think Elvira always appreciates someone else who really is um, as passionate about Johnny Cash as she is, even if in a different way. And I think Barry feels the same way. Mm. And, and so, yeah. And it was, you know, and then you look at the crowd and the crowd is, all ages and all in, you know, equal in gender. And they're all there to listen to this band who's from the Netherlands and from Ireland playing an American album that was recorded in our prison 50 years ago. That's really a, a weird mix of time, place and person. Um, and so I think that's, it seemed like, the way to end the book. And yeah. I, I think we say in the book too, that we were going to arrange our own concert, but of course we, we, we didn't need to do that. It, it's also where we were on the boats coming away from the concert and we talked to another guy and he, you know, begins to expand for us on how, you know, Johnny Cash is like Bob Marley, you know, that he, you know, that this is <clears throat> something that he wanted to communicate to us. And the other interesting thing, I suppose that, we had some interesting feedback then from Barry the day after the concert where he clearly wanted to still discuss things and talk about things. Um, and that led us into something yet again, which was 
a, a kind of subtle reorientation. At, at the start of the book, we've been talking to people a lot about uh, cash and Americanness, trying to tease out whether or not it was the idea of Americanness that somehow was drawing people to him. And we we weren't really progressing that much with that kind of question. We were finding some interesting things, but it, in many ways, I think over time, uh, the more people we talked to, and of course, the, the, just the more interesting it became to find out about them and where they were from and how cash became a lens for viewing their own place, not so much worrying too much about uh, America or an American perspective, but how does Johnny Cash make the city of Cork look? And in many ways, I think we could find implicitly that, you know, Barry, who's from Cork, I think they kind of uh, made Cash into a kind of imaginary Cork man or a, an honorary Cork man, I mean, or maybe imaginary as well. And the same thing I think happened in, uh, in other places too, that, Cash became this way of um, not exactly, you know, it wasn't that he just exemplifies who he was, but it became a way of uh, for them defining how they would like to relate themselves to their home place, to their own country. Uh, and I thought that was a remarkably powerful thing and something that I didn't really anticipate when we started the project. So, my, usually, which that is really interesting, actually, that idea of Johnny Cash being sort of part of those spaces. Um, so usually I end with this question or, or allowing you to talk about what you're working on next. So I know this just came out, so I don't know if there is anything in the pipes that you're, you know, either of you or both of you are working on, or if there's anything um, with this book that you're trying to sort of push out. So I'll just open that up to see if either of you have any sort of last words about this or new projects. <laughs> um, well, I'm actually doing a collection on the Houston Astros cheating scandal. Um, <laughs> uh, and Michael is writing an essay for the collections with his, with his American colleague about, uh, about cheating and the American way of cheating, I guess. Mm. Um, and then I have this long-term project on horse racing, which I'm not sure I'll ever finish, but I've been, I've only been working on it for 30 years. So um, <laughs> I, I'm sure it's going to no, come should, together very, very soon. We should add that that was another thing that the first evening that we met, apart from Johnny Cash's appointed connection, we were having dinner afterwards and it, it emerged that we, both shared not just a kind of love of horse racing, but an interest in it. An interest. We've both written about horse racing. So you can, we both have essays in the, the Cambridge Companion to horse racing. And we, we know a lot about race horses named after Johnny Cash songs at this point too, which is interesting <laughs> to know. Um, we're, we're open to movie offers, of course, for the Cash book. We're not exactly sure how it would play out, but you know. You can um, get Joaquin Phoenix to revive his... Uh... Johnny Cash. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, except for, except unfortunately for him, he would have to keep running into Johnny Cash fans who would critique his performance and tell him that they don't think very much. I, yes. I'd like well, to get Mar I'd like to get Marco in a movie though. That would be good. Yeah. Well, we have this idea. We do have this idea for a screenplay, and the screenplay would simply just be four different types of Johnny Cash fans preparing to cover Ring of Fire. Um, mm. But I, I don't know. I, 
I do not yeah. believe that. I don't believe that movie is going to be made. Uh, we could just start with Charlie opening his shop and putting on his, you know, yeah. putting on his cassette player and then let it flow from there. And, you know, I you can know. do the Johnny Cash version of Clerks. Right? Wasn't that yeah. the whole like? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'd be kind of like a, or more like a Warhol movie, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just sort of like the same. Well, <laughs> Charlie behind the Charlie behind the counter. We did um, when we were talking about the when we were looking at all those YouTube videos. There was a we used to talk about the rabbit hole, and the rabbit hole is not a friendly place. Uh, you know, once you were down there. And one Johnny Cash video led to yet another Johnny Cash cover video to yet another Johnny Cash cover video. And some of the videos, I still wonder if I actually, you know, hallucinated them because uh, we weren't able to find everything. We were going back through our notes for the, the book. Some of the things that we were sure we'd seen had disappeared and couldn't be retrieved. Um, I mean, yeah, that happened more than that happened more than once. Yeah. Um, I wonder what's up there now, you know, that that's another part of that web stuff. My goodness, you know, just, uh, it's a, a deep, a deep, a deep world, a deep honeycomb. Never ending. Mm -hmm. So this has been Michael Hines and Jonathan Silverman, the authors of Johnny Cash International, how and why fans love the man in black. Thanks for talking with me um, for the new books network. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. All right.